Well, chapter 38, verse 1, as we finally now arrive to what we've been waiting for, we finally get to read, and then the Lord answered. And those four words, of course, bring us to a very pivotal spot as we now transition through the remainder of the last few chapters of the book of Job, where God now interjects and begins to speak and begins to state things really that are intended to help ultimately Job, as well as I believe his few friends who are around him trying to process his sufferings and the hardships that he was going through. And again, remember chapters one and two describe to us how Job was this incredibly godly man, blameless and upright, someone who loved the Lord. God was bragging about him, was so proud about him, said, I have no one like him on the entire earth. Uh, And Job was not guilty of some wrongdoing or sin, but of course we saw what unfolded in sort of the, uh, you know, cosmic uh, events there between God and Satan as the angels were coming before God's presence. Satan came and began to launch accusations really against God as well as against Job, that the only reason that Job served God was basically because God blessed him so much and that Job really didn't love God. And that God really wasn't worthy of being worshipped for just who he was. The only reason Job worshipped and served him so faithfully was because of really all the gifts and the goodies and all the blessings that God had brought into Job's life. And Job was a very blessed man. We saw that he was endowed with a lot of wealth. Remember, he had a large family, 10 children. He had a, a wife. He had servants. I mean, Job was a very prosperous and a very blessed man. I think a lot of that came from him serving the Lord. But uh, Satan began to somewhat kind of accuse Job and somewhat at the same time accused God, really saying, well, look, the only reason he serves you is because you put such a, a, a barrier of protection around his life and, and you've blessed him so much. I mean, who wouldn't serve you as much as you've blessed him? Uh, But if you take away some of those blessings or you allow me to have some access to his life, and remember, keep in mind, that was the reality is that uh, God's boundary is around his people. And the only access Satan can have in any way in any of our lives as God's people is if God and his sovereignty chooses to allow that to some degree. Uh, Ultimately, God is our protection. He's our preservation. And Ultimately, God, in a sense, uh, took Satan up on his challenge to basically disprove that Satan was a liar, that he was worthy to be worshipped regardless of the conditions of Job's life, and that Job truly did love the Lord. And whether Job was blessed or whether Job was suffering or lost everything, that Job would still continue to faithfully worship God and serve God. And so we watched as God allowed Little by little, Satan to have some degree of access to Job's life and a lot of horrific things. In a very short period of time, you see how absolutely crazy and chaotic the devil is as a being. I mean, instantaneously, the problems he brought into Job's life, I mean, the the destruction of all of his wealth, the destruction of his servants, his business, all 10 of his children dying in one day. And then on top of that, the loss of his health, these painful boils and this horrific health condition, which we don't know exactly what it was, but it left Job suffering in pain and daily anguish and fevers and 
you know, pus coming out of his wounds. And for months and months on end, Job's been dealing with these chronic health problems and all this pain that he's been in. And in the whole process, not even fully understanding exactly why all these hardships are culminating in his life and really kind of all at the same time. And he has no explanation. And then, of course, the friends come and we've seen as we've watched together the last 35 chapters as Job and his friends have kind of gone back and forth. And their predominant thing was, Job, something's got to be wrong in your personal life. Maybe there's some unconfessed sin. Maybe there's something that's not right between you and God because God would not allow you to suffer like this or God would not make you suffer like this unless there was something that you have done wrong because uh, God wouldn't punish someone or let someone suffer if they were faithfully serving him. And in their mindset, those who suffered were those who didn't serve God and those who were doing well were those who were serving God. And they had this very kind of generic blanket idea rather than thinking outside of the box and realizing that God was much bigger than their little mental concepts of things. And they began to falsely accuse Job, and it created this whole dialogue and debate back and forth, chapter after chapter, as they've been all been trying to put forth their ideas and their reasons for why these things were happening to Job. And a lot of it is somewhat, to a degree, brought Job downhill, because it, to a degree, started making Job actually question things himself, and almost somewhat kind of challenging. I wish I could stand before God and debate my case. And I, I don't understand why, to some degree, God, why God is allowing these things. And though Job kept his, in a sense, faith in the Lord, uh, he was struggling in regards to why God was permitting these things in his life. And it, it felt very unjust and unfair. As at times, we wrestle mentally when we go through hard times as well if we try and put the pieces together. And sometimes that's the problem is that when we bring ourselves to a place where we feel like that we have to always have the answers for why everything's happening, all we really end up doing is just torturing ourselves mentally. And, and I'll tell you this, on this side of eternity, nowhere in the word of God is it promised to us that we will have the answer to every question that we will have full understanding of everything about why God does what he does or why God allows what he allows and why things unfold in our lives. But what the Bible does teach is that around the throne of God that people say continuously righteous and true are all of your ways. In other words, when you enter into glory, you're set free from this physical body of flesh and you have a glorified eternal body prepared for that dimension and you are in God's presence. It seems like instantaneously all the questions you had your whole life one of two things happen. Either they all get answered when you look face to face to God at the throne or none of the questions matter anymore. I'm kind of starting to lean more towards the second. <laughs> that quite frankly, all the questions that seem to matter so much here, they just don't matter when you get into the presence of the Lord. All those questions are very insignificant and don't matter for a whole lot anymore. Well, finally, after these 35 chapters, we now come to chapter 38, verse 1, where it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... Now, interesting, the Lord answered Job, which indicates that throughout this whole process of the last 35 chapters that God has been silently listening. You want to talk about the greatest listener that's ever existed? It's actually God. Now, uh, that's kind of somewhat convicting in some senses because sometimes we can't have a 
dialogue with someone or a conversation or maybe a disagreement to some degree with someone where we can't more five, six, seven sentences. We are just waiting for our moment to, you know, get our zinger in there or contradict what they're saying or quite God. Think about 35 chapters. We just read through God, let all these people talk. And he is God, the all knowing God who has everything right and knows everything. He sat there silently and he just let them wear themselves out. He just let them talk themselves out you know i I, to some degree i've taken that tip from god a little bit where once in a while i've learned with certain people sometimes if you just stay quiet long enough they talk themselves out try it sometime if you have somebody who's like it just sometimes just continue to stay quiet and after a while even people who just incessantly talk will talk themselves out eventually it will happen and sometimes it actually ends up being more beneficial than going back and forth in the exchanges. And God just waits to the end. And now God answers because God's been listening to all this. And here's what's interesting is that we're going to see as God answers, God actually doesn't give Job or the friends technically the answers to the questions that they were asking. Now, that's a little bit difficult to swallow. Wait a minute. If God answers, doesn't he answer my questions? I got a lot of questions. God, I've been asking questions. Why am I suffering and why this? And and really, God does not specifically answer their questions. If you read through the remainder of the book, we'll see. He really doesn't give the answer for why they, why Job suffered or why humans suffer in general. What God does answer is he says, Job... The greater thing that you need answered in your life is not why I allowed you to suffer, but what matters most in the midst of your suffering, which is this, is my greatness. And Job, if you would come more into the awareness of how great of a God that I am, how all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-wise, all-powerful, the more you'd understand that, Job. All the other questions that you have really just wouldn't even matter as much because Job would find rest in that and he would find a sense of peace in that very thing. And sometimes the Lord answers us in ways different than what we think. We think we need the answer this way and, and God may have a completely different way whereby he answers our deepest need because he knows my deepest need even better than I do. And so in the midst of Job's hardship now, he gets an answer. But notice God's answer is just a bunch more questions. Really, God? (laughs) Here, I'm going to give you an answer, Job. Look what happens. Verse 2, he says, Who is this who darkens counsel, that is, obscures and, and, and makes difficult to see counsel by words without knowledge? Now, again, whether God is specifically there referring to Job's three, or we might better say four friends, because Elihu we saw spoke at the end, the last few chapters, whether he's talking about them, whether he's talking about Job, or really all of them, he says that their incessant speaking of words that were lacking knowledge, which goes to show, guess what? Sometimes we can speak words and there's not much knowledge or healthy information behind what we're saying. And he says, when that happens, it doesn't help people find counsel and direction. It just darkens counsel. The idea is that it misdirects people. And so sometimes that's even why it's a good reminder for us that sometimes there's a time to speak, the Bible says, and even a time to be silent. Sometimes when we think, like Job's friends, we need to say so much. Like, remember Job's three friends, they came at first and they just sat with him. And things were going really well when they just sat with him. And they just grieved with him. And they just let him have his 
hardship and his suffering, but when they felt like they had to give Job answers and explanations, that's when their counsel started actually darkening Job's way and really misguiding Job. And here, the, the first thing that God says, he says, what is this, those who are darkening counsel by speaking all these words without knowledge? Verse three says, now prepare yourself like a man and I will question you and you will answer me. So he says, Job, son, buckle up your seatbelt because he says, for a long period of time, you and your friends have done quite a bit of questioning me. So he says, now it's my turn. I've been quiet. And he says, so look, I'm now going to question you. We're going to switch gears now. Now he says, I'm going to question you and we'll see what you will answer me. And what's going to happen in our verses ahead, God's going to ask 70 plus questions in a row. And he doesn't even give Job the opportunity hardly at all to even answer. The idea is I'm going to ask a lot of questions and Job, you're not going to have any answers, really. <laughs> you're going to see Job's going to answer once or twice very shortly. And all it is is just an admission of how humbled he is by the greatness of God and how aware he is of how awesome God is and really how vile and insignificant of a person he was in comparison just to the greatness of God to where, again, he wasn't really upset as much as he was just thankful for who God was and God's mercy towards him in so many ways above all else. So he says, Job, prepare yourself. I'm going to question you and you shall answer me. Verse four, he begins the questioning process. He says, let's start with this, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, God says, or who stretched out the line upon it? So he says, Job, tell me, you and your friends who've all interjected your fair share of understanding and knowledge and information and justifying that you're right to prove that the other's wrong, as we all like to do as human beings, you know, we have to prove that we're right and the other's wrong in situations. He says, tell me, he says, as you've somewhat began to question me, he says, can I ask, he says, but when, when, when the earth was being created, when I was laying the foundations of the earth, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as they were working together, bringing about creation, establishing the foundations of the earth, determining its measurements and putting it all together, he says, um, I don't remember seeing you at that meeting. W were you there? I did, were you maybe just in the next room listening? Or, um, you know, I, I don't remember you submitting anything. I don't remember you even offering measurements. I don't remember you saying, here's a good measurement for a tree or anything. He says, when we were laying out the complexity of the foundations of the earth, determining its measurements, he says, where were you? Were you a part of that complex process? Did you have the knowledge to understand those things and to determine its measurements? And he says, tell me if, if you have understanding, uh, surely you must know. It seems that you all seem to know more than I do as God as they were questioning really what God was doing. He says, verse six, to what were its foundations fastened? In other words, again, uh, you know, how did the earth not only get formed, but what was its foundation? Who's been upholding the earth all this time, Job? Job, as your world is falling apart, and that's what it felt like to Job, right? Like, like the foundations of his life were just crumbling. You ever feel like that? Like the foundations of your life are just crumbling and like your world is falling apart. He says, look, I know that's how you feel personally, Job. He says, but when the foundations were being fastened of the earth, in other words, 
Job, I'm holding the whole earth together. If I'm holding the whole earth together, you don't think I can hold your world together? Though you may feel like the foundations of your life are crumbling, Job, to some degree, I almost sense God's kind of bringing to Job's attention here. Job, really, it's, it's not all about just you. The world's a much bigger place. And sometimes as God, I'm doing much bigger things. You know, I understand to a degree the effect of what goes on in our lives. We feel it, but I think sometimes God wants to remind us that we are just kind of one speck of dust on a bigger speck of dust in a grand universe that a huge God is controlling and operating in his massive, incredible plan And all of these things God is coordinating for his ultimate plans and purposes. And sometimes, look, even the hardships and the difficulties and the challenges we go through in our lives, sometimes it's actually something that's bigger than ourselves. Maybe God's doing something beyond us. Maybe it's in the midst of that that, you know, my path is going to, you know, cross with someone else. You know, I, I think of, for example, just... You know, our brother Joe Cherry, who just passed away and all the health issues he went through and how many times was he in and out of hospitals and everything that he went through. And and you begin to consider the reality that God allowed that. God permitted so many of the health challenges and so forth. But sometimes people like that, in the midst of God permitting and allowing that in their life, God also, I think, can utilize those things to make people become like medical missionaries. Because guess what? There's doctors and nurses and other patients and respiratory therapists, right? And people who come in and draw your blood, whatever those people are called, phlebotomists or something like that. All these different people are coming in and they need Jesus too. They need to hear about the Lord as well. And what better way than to see somebody who's suffering and hurting and in pain and anguish, and yet they're still showing compassion towards somebody who's taking care of them or they're trying to show the joy of the Lord or they use an opportunity to speak about the Lord. And, and, you know, sometimes things are much bigger than us and God is using even our hardships, even the challenges we go through. And maybe it's so that our path crosses with someone. Maybe it's so that we can minister to someone else. And again, it may feel like our world is falling apart, but God is kind of reminding Job, look, Job, it's much bigger than this. He says, where were you when when the foundations of the earth were fashioned and and its cornerstone was laid? Job, I I control all of that. I've been upholding everything. I got you, Job, he's saying. I got you. He says, verse 7, and when the morning stars, now that's a reference to the angels. Again, the sons of God or the morning stars are Old Testament references to angelic beings. When they sang together, And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, that tells us a thing or two there that the angelic beings, the morning stars, the sons of God, it says they were singing together and shouting for joy in the prior verses referring to during the process of God creating the earth, which tells us that the angels, it seems, were witness to and a part of and watching by observation as the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Trinity, were creating the heavens and the earth as the creation process was happening, that they were watching, they were seeing the incredible wisdom and watching God just speak and things coming into existence. And to some degree, it perhaps indicates to us as well then that very likely, I believe, that then the fall of Satan actually happened after creation. 
very likely when he saw man created and God make man the object of his love, creating man in his image and likeness, that that was when Satan in his utter jealousy became enraged and in his jealousness may have been the time when he ultimately then launched his rebellion against God and had such an incredible hatred towards man. And then, of course, Genesis 3, we see right away him go after man as his very first act after his rebellion. So verse 8 says that God says to him, or who shut in the sea with the doors? So now he begins to speak about the waters over the earth. He says, who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds, its garment and thick uh, darkness, its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said this far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. So here God says to Job, were, were, were you a part of that process? And did you exercise the power that I did to be able to not only create the heavens and the earth and the land and the, the, the bodies of water? And then he speaks here of even setting the limitations over the bodies of water, that the waves would not pass by a certain point that there would be a a fixed limit he says when i fixed my limit for the waters and again keep in mind two-thirds of the earth is covered with water and then a third is covered with land and here god speaks of fixing limits for the water saying to the water this far you may come but no farther and here your proud waves must stop you know i mean think about as you just go down to the ocean how the waves come in you know it is god who in a sense, chooses how far they come in and then retract and they go back out. And if it weren't for God's control of such things, or really the other things that exist, the topography of the earth, mountain ranges and all these kind of things that God has set in order in creation, if God did not set limits for the oceans and the seas and all the bodies of water, it is estimated that the entire earth could be, if God were to take all the limiting factors of the the boundaries of the waters away, that the entire earth could be covered with up to a mile deep of water. That's how much water exists. But again, because God set limitations, dry land remains dry land. The bodies of water remain what they are. And again, God here is reminding Job, look, Job, if you can't even do these things, do do you really think you should quit? I'm controlling this. (laughs) I'm keeping the entire earth from being flooded again. I've set these things in their place. I mean, again, think how strong the currents of the ocean are. And God says, I set a limit to it. I mean, which one of us can go down to the ocean and when a wave has come and say, look, stop right there. That's your limit. All right. It's right there. You just stop right there, even with one wave. And God's doing this with every body of water all over the entire planet saying he is saying that's how far you can come no further. And he tells those proud waves that they have to stop. He then goes on to say, verse 12, and have you, Job, he says, commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked shaken out of it. So he says, Job, tell me. Now he begins to talk here about the starting of the day or the breaking of dawn. He says, tell me, when was the last time that you, like me, have been in control of when the sun rises and when it doesn't? He says there in verse 12, he says, have you ever tried it to command the morning since your days have began, since you've been alive, Job? He says, has there ever been a day that you've caused the dawn to know its place? 
In other words, Job, has there ever been a time where maybe you couldn't sleep? And so at 3 a.m., it's still dark, and you just cannot sleep any longer. So you decide, I just, I'm getting up. I'm just going to get up and take a walk. And you walked outside of your dwelling, and you said, sun, rise. Come up early. I want you to come up at 3 a.m. And he says, has that ever worked for you? But yet, he says, Job, these are the kind of things that I can control. In fact, remember, even the Bible tells us of the story in the Old Testament in the days of Joshua, when Joshua wanted to continue to have victory in a battle. The best we ever see is when Joshua prayed, God, please just let the sun stand still for just a little bit longer so that I can continue. But again, what did Joshua know? I have to ask God to do that because God controls that. God's controlling when the sun's rising, when the sun is setting. He says, Job, there's a little bit of a, a gap between the power and control of what I have as compared to the power and control that you have over things. And I think sometimes we need to just kind of remember that to some degree. Look, if we can't control when the sun rises and when the waves stop, why do we think sometimes that we can control so many other things in life? Probably one of the biggest plagues that we put ourselves through in torture as human beings is we, to some degree, always become control freaks. And we feel like that we can control everything or we feel like we have to control everything or be in control of everything. And the reality is, is look, that's God's job. God's in control of everything. The Bible says that in him, all things consist. He holds everything together. God makes the sun rise. He makes the sun set. God changes the season. He controls the waves. If he's controlling those things, he's in control. And he's control of all the smaller things of my life too. And I don't have to try and take control or be in control this is where we can just rest and know that we have a good and powerful heavenly father who's ruling over all these things. He says, verse 14, it takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and upraised arm is broken. Verse 16, he now begins to speak about the, the, the waters further. He says, tell me, Job, have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you walked in search of the depths? Again, think about how certain places on the earth, literally miles deep, certain bodies of water are oceans and so forth. He says, Job, have you ever, have you ever traveled down that far? Have you been able to plumb those depths to walk in search of how deep things truly are? He asked verse 17, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? In other words, Job, do, do you know where the doorway of death is? Do you know that, Job? Did, did you somehow help me set that up? Do you know where the gateway is where somebody passes from this physical earthly life into the spiritual and eternal dimension? Where's that gateway at, Job? Where does it exist? How exactly does a person pass through that, he says? Have you ever understood that do you understand has it been fully revealed to you have you, have you seen it he says the doors that i've created as a sovereign god of the the doorway of death for mankind to transition from earthly life into eternal life have you comprehended he says verse 18 the breath the circumference of the earth tell me if you know all this again the breath of the earth we, we just recently are beginning to learn these kind of things some twenty-five thousand miles they say in circumference and the diameter of the earth a little bit over or almost 8,000 uh, or so miles and, and again he's saying Job did you help me measure this stuff did you lay this out with me he says tell me if you, if you know these things let me know but again it's almost as if God's reminding Job if you don't know these things 
then can't you accept the fact that I know everything and you can rest in that? And that even though you don't have all the answers, Job, your God does. Your God who loves you and is in control has all the answers. So you don't have to have all the answers. You can live your life without having a full answer to everything and trust that I know what I'm doing. And you don't have to question, though it doesn't seem right in your logical thinking. Because again, there's that gap between our finite minds and God's great infinite person and all that he knows. He says, verse 19, and where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home. In other words, Job, do you understand how light and darkness works and the speed of light and you know the, the, the presence of light? Do you, do you understand this? Did you create light and darkness? Do you know what he says? Because you were born then? Were, were you alive when I said, let there be light? <laughs> Have you been around as long as I have, he says, Job, or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail? Again, these things that God has at his disposal, snow and hail. Do you control these things? I mean, think of how even something like that, hail, where we see on occasion that God uses something even like hail to orchestrate his purposes, Remember in one of the battles that Joshua was fighting as they were in the midst of the battle, it says that God literally began to throw down from the heavens hail to basically give victory militarily to Joshua and to the children of Israel. We're told in Revelation 16 that in part of the judgments of God as things are unfolding during the time of the tribulation period, that large hailstones are going to fall from the sky as a part of God's punishment upon the wicked humanity. And hailstones that seem to be, with a measurement given there in the Bible, somewhere they believe between 80 to 100 pounds. People dispute, okay, is it 80 pounds? Is it 100 pounds? Look, if something that big hits you, I don't think it's going to matter. So you could take the Greek measurement, the Roman measurement. If God throws one of them puppies at you, you're done. All right? It ain't like getting hit in the head with a softball. If you get hit with one of those from heaven, that's it. But again, God is in full control of these things. Can, he has all these things at his disposal. And again, I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. God has so much at his disposal. God can even pull hail out of the treasury, you know? And God's like, all right, give me a few, give me a few hail balls. We got, a, we got a battle we need to finish down there. And God just starts, I need Israel to win there. And just, oh, they're going to destroy Israel. They're gonna, look, God's going, are you kidding me? I could throw a few hail balls down there, deal with the whole Middle East at any given moment in time if I want to. Again, what a great reminder of what God has at his disposal. Because my resources are limited, your resources are limited. God has unlimited resources. God has everything at his disposal because he controls all things and is able to use anything to bring about his plans. Again, that gives us rest when we don't understand why things are happening, when we're going through hard times, to be able to trust that this is the greatness of the God who we know and serve. He says, verse 13, which I have reserved notice for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Again, there, there's that very question I'm alluding to. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. He's speaking about the treasury of hail which God says I've reserved for the time of trouble and for the day of battle and war. I can use those things to help wars go the way that I want them to. By what way is light diffused? Again, Job, do you understand that? 
the bending of light and how these things work, or the east wind scattered over the earth, who has divided the channel for the overflowing water, speaking of erosion and the process of erosion, which is a gradual process of God wearing a path through erosion in a channel of water, or the path for the thunderbolt, a quick way, where God can, in the same way, produce a pathway in a much more powerful way with a lightning strike where he can clear something out. And again, what an interesting concept. Verse 25, he's saying to to Job, look, Job, I can create a channel and a pathway slowly with erosion over time very gradually, or I can instantaneously with one lightning bolt clear out a path and make a pathway in the same moment if I want it right away. Sometimes that's how God works. Sometimes God gradually works in a situation to make it go away once or two. Sometimes God very suddenly and quickly orchestrates his power like a quick lightning bolt clearing a path to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass. Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? from whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven who gives it birth he says who controls these things the you know the, the the polar ice and these kind of things the waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen again these areas on the earth where literally you know uh, you know lakes and bodies of water become like hard as stone where uh, wasn't there a documentary? I think about that, you know, ice truck drivers. Some of these guys literally drive the big, massive trucks on bodies of water because it literally becomes that hard and frozen that they can take tractor trailers over top of what were bodies of water because they're able to, you know, have such, you know, really confidence that the waters become so frozen that literally it becomes like hardened stone. And again, who controls that? God does. God's the one completely in control of that. He says, verse 31, turning now to astrology and to things like the stars, he says, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades, he says, or loose the belt of Orion? So again, the the Pleiades refers to the constellation of the, the seven stars or what we refer to, you know, the seven sisters, he says, or can you loose the belt of Orion? He says, can you bring out, verse 32, the Maseroth in its season or guide the great bear? We know that is Arturus with its curbs. Do you know their ordinances of the heavens? And can you set their dominion over the earth? So again, he's reminding Job here in regards to not just things on earth, but things in the stellar heavens, the Orion, the, you know, the constellation near the celestial equator, the Maseroth, what we know of today is basically the reference to those 12 constellations that we refer to as the signs of the Zodiac, right? And, and the signs of the Zodiac have been something that's been observed for civilizations ever since writing came into existence. Some even say, and I, you know, I don't know how much credibility there is to it, that, that even the signs of the Zodiac mark out the message of the gospel itself. Now, whether there's truth to that, I don't know. But, you know, God's quite amazing. I mean, who in the world knows the many different ways God has marvelously orchestrated things? But again, he's saying, Job, are, are, are you able to understand these things? Were you there when I created them? The Bible says that every star God knows by name. That God flung these things into existence. With ease, God created them. 
He speaks of there in verse 32, guiding the great bear or our Taurus. Again, our Taurus is the fourth brightest star in our sky. And listen, it's 80 times brighter than our sun. Now, when you think about how hot and how bright our sun is, imagine something 80 times brighter than our sun, the fourth brightest star in the sky. And our tourist is 25, they believe anyway, 20. Imagine a man getting up there with a measuring line. That's why I read these facts sometimes and I'm thinking, come on, really? I mean, did we get God to tell us this? You know, it's almost like there's a hesitancy of when this kind of research comes out, you know, who was up there with the tape measure going, yeah, it's exactly 27 times bigger than the sun. They say 25 to 30 times larger than our sun. And keep in mind, they say that you could put a thousand earths inside of our sun. So you can put a thousand earths inside of our sun. And they say that our Taurus as a star is 25 to 30 times larger than the sun and moving at a speed of 275,000 miles per hour. And God says to Job, would you like to try steering that around for a while? I don't remember you helped me create that. But he then says there, not only can you understand it, but he says, can you guide the great bear? Job, you want to you take the reins and try and steer that thing for a little while? And don't crash. Don't hit anything. Don't bang into any planets or anything else. And again, as God says these things, no doubt he's trying to really, in essence, console Job and help Job come to terms with the reality of Job. I know your problems seem huge to you, and I know you're hurting, son. And I know what you're going through is hard, and you don't understand why, and it's, it's difficult. But Job, do you remember the limitless power and resources that I have? And Job, if I can guide our tourists through the universe toward all the centuries of humanity, I can guide what's going on in your life right now. I can do it, Job. Just trust me. Rest in that. Let me guide you through the process. You don't have to fret or fear. My guiding hand is upon you, Job. I know you don't see and understand it all now, but trust that I am guiding you even as I guide all these great things. He says, can you lift up your voice to the clouds? that an abundance of water may cover you. In other words, can you cause it to rain by speaking, Job? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say, here we are? Who has put wisdom into the mind? So he says, Job, who was the one who gave man wisdom anyway? Who, who gives man wisdom? Of course, it's God that does. Or who has given understanding to the heart? It's God who does. Who can number the clouds, he says, by wisdom? Or who can pour out bottles of heaven when the dust hardens and clumps and the clods cling together can you hunt prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs and lie in wait so he says again job are you able to feed think of what he says there are you able to hunt prey and satisfy the appetite of lions now if you let yourself get eaten by one i guess you could but the point there is, who's going to feed somebody like a lion? That's a pretty difficult task, right? Who's going to feed a lion? That is a ferocious beast, but yet God takes care of that lion like it's his little tiny kitty. 
right? I mean, he's got little kitties, he's got cats all over the earth. And he says, who satisfies the lion? Who makes sure the lion is fed and that it gets its prey? And that again, the whole animal kingdom, God will talk about this, that, you know, the animal kingdom is sustained and taken care of. He says, I'm the one who's ultimately doing that. Look what he says, verse 41, after speaking about the lion, he then transitions, says, and who provides food for the raven? When its young ones cry out to God and wander about for the lack of food. So he says, Job, look, I'm not only taking care of the lions, I'm even taking care of the birds, the ravens. I'm taking care of all those things. Job, if if I can address and take care of all those things, he's saying, how much more can I take care of you? You know, this, as I read verse 41 there, it makes me think of uh, the words of Jesus himself, who kind of alluded to similar things to encourage us when we, you know, find ourselves worrying and being troubled over things. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus, you know, speaks of very similar things when he talks about our challenges with worries. Why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? Well, maybe we'll just conclude right here for this evening, the end of 38. And let's look at Jesus' words as he kind of in some ways says very similar things to encourage our hearts regarding worries and things that we have from time to time focusing on God's greatness and that God loves us and takes care of us. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this to us. Matthew 6, let's pick it up in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What will you eat or what will you drink or about your body, what you will put on? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Remember what we just read in Job's? Last statement there in chapter 38, look at the birds of the air. God takes care of the ravens, right? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. And then God uses the emphasis, are you not of more value than they? Again, if God takes that good care of individual birds that don't even maybe understand at times how to take care of themselves. He says, isn't God going to take care of you? You have much more value to God. He's he's emphasizing the reason God takes care of you is not just his goodness, but the value you have to God. God, we have tremendous value to God. He wants us to know that as his children. Which of you, he then asked, verse 27, by worrying can add one cubit to his stature. Again, the idea there, simply verse 27 is a question The intended implication of it is what productive thing can come out of worrying, right? That's the thing. It doesn't it, let's be honest, doesn't it feel so responsible to worry? I mean, it just does. I mean, if you don't worry, you actually feel guilty like you're irresponsible sometimes, right? And people almost want to make you feel, why aren't you, I mean, you should be worrying. I mean, why aren't you stressed out? And, and, And our humanity makes us feel like, It is the responsible thing to worry. I have got to stress to some degree or I'm not responsible or I don't care or I'm not concerned. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be responsible, but what God is reminding us of is worry is a lot like a rocking chair, right? It gives you something to do, but you don't get anywhere, right? It gives you something to do, but worry is unproductive. So he says, which of you by worrying can bring one change, a tiny change. The worry itself doesn't bring any change. God brings change. And when we can responsibly do things, we should try and bring change. But the worry is just damaging. It just changes our disposition because it harms us mentally and emotionally and even spiritually. 
it can become sinful if taken to a wrong degree. He says, verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Now he's talking about the flowers out there. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, Jesus says, as God, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So he coordinates, where does worry come from? Jesus says it actually is an indication of our lack of faith at times that we are not exercising faith in the greatness of God, in the fact that God has all wisdom and he has everything in his disposal. And when we get stressed out, whether it's over where's our bill going to get paid from or, or, or anything, that to, again, what in the world's going to happen with this election? God's saying the, the root of the issue, you have a faith problem. Because if you trust my greatness... If you would believe that I'm in control, that I'm the God who's steering around our tourists and all these things, you wouldn't have to, to just let yourself get overly worried and stressed out. You could just say, God, I, I know it's in your hands and I can't control it anyway. And you are in control. And, and we just rest in that reality. And again, that's what God wants for our mental health and our emotional health so we don't destroy ourselves being consumed with these kind of things. Again, verse 31, in case we didn't hear it yet, Jesus wants to make sure. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what's going to happen to the economy? No, that's not in there. What shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. Again, that's what the world is concerned about, the unbelievers who don't follow God. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things things what's his instruction to us verse 33 seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you he says look here's the priority and really the answer for worry. you just keep your priority on the king of kings and the kingdom of god and all these other things that everybody else runs around in the world stressed out chasing just allowing to overwhelm and dictate everything about their life. He says, all those things, he says, as you're just seeking the kingdom, your father will just, he'll just add those things into your life. He'll just take care of them. He'll just put them into place and allow them to, in their proper time and order, just come together for you. Verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Good advice, right? For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's almost as if God is saying, look, I got it all under control. For you, more than a day, you'll be overwhelmed. Just a day, God says. Give me a day. You give me one day at a time and trust me with your tomorrow. 